Episode 1, Introducing the Beatles. The Beatles come to America. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to the Beatles Come to America podcast. I am your host, Tom Galker, along with the guest on the phone is the Beatles guru, Brooke Halpin. Today, we are talking about the album Introducing the Beatles, released on January 6, 1964. January 6, 1964 is what we call the official start date of Beatlemania in America. Our lives would change forever. Before we get into the show, we got some housekeeping notes. I have a podcast that's called Something Came From Baltimore, which is a music interview podcast about jazz, R&B, and blues. It's not really about Baltimore, but please subscribe. The link is in the show notes. The Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin, is all-knowing when it comes to the Beatles. He sweats that Beatles DNA. Follow Brooke Halpin on his Facebook page, Come to America. Come together with the Beatles and Brooke Halpin. That link is also in the show notes. On the Facebook page, we ask you to subscribe to the community. And what we're asking you to do is to rank your favorite U.S. album from best to worst. And trust me, it's a hard, hard road to follow. At the end of each episode of The Beatles Come to America, we have Brooke Halpin performing an original song, so you don't want to miss that. Also, this is a DIY low-tech production, so neither of us are in the studio. We're both in our, our living rooms talking about The Beatles. So you're going to hear some pops and hisses in your mind. Don't go crazy. Just assume that you're listening to a Beatles record, a Beatles scratchy record, and you got those pops and hisses going on. So that is that is real. The housekeeping chores are complete. Now, let's get into the interview. Let's talk about the album cover first. It's striking in the fact that it's very inoffensive in my opinion where how nice they look it seems that it's done on purpose so you know once they open up the record there's this amazing high energy you know youth oriented album but you wanted to get a buy-in from the parents to just say okay i'm gonna spend money on this album these guys on the bj cover are smiling they're smiling and they're clean they're much more clean cut i'd say their hair is shorter on this in this photograph and they're very well dressed very smartly dressed you know with three-piece suits uh, you know a vest and they're wearing knit ties and they look they look really nice they don't look like a bunch of rock and rollers you know mind you you know when brian Epstein had met them they looked like a bunch of uh, roughnecks you know wearing their black leather outfits on stage so this photograph is absolutely a result of Brian F. sign of the reins and managing the Beatles, no doubt. It starts off with, uh, I Saw Her Stand There, which is the B-side to I Want to Hold Your Hand. This song hit number 14, believe it or not, and it's ranked by Rolling Stone the 139th best song of all time. And in my opinion, it's a better song than I Want to Hold Your Hand. One, two, three, five! <laughs> 
I saw her standing there, it was never released as a single, it was the B-side. But because of the Beatles' immense popularity, radio stations were playing everything that they got their hands on in early 1964. So they'd play the A-side, then they would flip it over and play the B-side on all of their singles. And so therefore, it was never released as, as an A-side, so it didn't get the attention that I want to hold your hand got. And musically, I saw her standing there. It's quite customary in terms of the chord changes. There's nothing really unusual about it. But on the other hand, no pun intended, is that I Want to Hold Your Hand is far more advanced harmonically and musically. There's a lot more going on in terms of the, the arrangement and the harmony uh, juxtaposed to the melody. Uh, I prefer I Want to Hold Your Hand over I Saw You Standing There. But when you put the two of them together on one single, it was, my God, it was a one-two punch knockout. No doubt about it. Next song on the album is Misery. It's a John song. I love The World is Treating Me Bad, Misery. It's going to be a drag. Misery. What's your thought about Misery? I, I think it's a good song, but it's, I mean, the lyrics are completely dreary, and they're, they're completely down. The world is treating me bad, Misery. The world is treating me bad, Misery. You know, it's like, who the hell wants to be... Uh, surrounded in a, a world filled with misery. Yeah, it's a terribly. I don't. I, I. I don't. It's not one of my favorite Beatles songs from this period. But you know, I'm the kind of guy that never used to cry. Blah 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 blah. And I don't. I don't really care for it, uh, Tom. It's. Uh, it's okay. You know, as I would call this uh, uh, a good. A good album filler track is what I would. Uh, categorize this song as our next song is anna go with him now this is oh, yeah. yeah this is written by uh arthur alexander it, it was uh released on dot records in 1962 anna you come and ask me girl to set you Oh, I love it as well. I think it's one of the best vocals that John did on this album. I absolutely love it. I think he did a terrific job. And, and the entire band uh, sounds, I think they sound great. So this song was a good vehicle uh, for the Beatles in terms of exhibiting uh, their talent uh, as a band uh, and as vocals, as a vocalist, as singers as well. James. My baby's got me locked up in chains And it ain't the kind That you can see Oh, these chains of love Got a hold on me, yeah Chains? George sang on this one. This was a Gotham King song. Uh, the Cookies uh, made it on the top 40 at number 17. We have to mention the Everly Brothers here. And the Beatles loved the Everly Brothers. And when you listen to the Everly Brothers' vocals and the way they sing together, you can hear how Don and Phil Everly influenced 
John and Paul singing. Absolutely. And I also loved uh, John's harmonica playing on the track, which was, you know, was just right. Because as you may know, John was playing a lot of harmonica back in in 62 and 63, and the harmonica was used on quite a bit of the recordings back then. So yeah, I, I love James. I love George singing it, and I would give this one for me uh, an absolute uh, A plus, actually. Next song is Boys, and that's a Ringo song. So they're spreading the wealth of uh, lead vocals. They got George in, now they got Ringo. Doing the research, they were calling us a filler, a big filler. And the Shirelles made a big hit. It was the B-side of uh, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow. I don't look at it as a filler. I think time has been really kind to this song. I think it rocks, and it's it's a great rock song. And uh, that's why they said they gave it to Ringo, is that they just thought, oh, this is kind of a filler song we're going to put on here. But I think he did a fantastic job on it. Uh, the drum work is on it. The whole, I think this is an A-plus for me also. Yeah, this is an A-plus. And this, to me, is a great example of how exciting the Beatles were back then as a rock and roll band. This is an absolute rock and roll recording. There's no question about it. The energy is, is, is fierce energy. It's, it's incredible. McCartney's bass playing is out of this world on this track. And you do, you've got the call and answer, you know, with Ringo doing the lead vocal. And then uh, the other lads answering, you know, yeah, yeah, boys. And it's an amazing song, in my opinion. It's Love Me Do. And uh, it's their fourth number one song in 1964. It was basically written by Paul. What's your thought of Love Me Do? Oh, I love Love Me Do. And I think it's a blues. I mean, with the harmonica that John plays, it's very bluesy. is a blues lick and no one ever really calls the song blues you know they call it pop and rock and roll you could say uh, some people call it maybe r&b but to me it's real bluesy it's a bluesy song i love it and it was the first song that the beatles uh, released you know in um, late uh, late 62 it wasn't a number one but it cracked the top 20 and that was pretty damn good. It was very exciting because they always wanted to, you know, make a record, as George said. So, yeah, I, I love Love Me Do. I still love Love Me Do. And I still, as a matter of fact, I still sing and perform Love Me Do whenever, I, whenever I'm performing around here. It goes right to the next song, which is P.S. I Love You. I love it. I, I think it's a, a great song. I, I think it's one of the best songs, actually. Paul mostly wrote that one. And I I still love it as much as I did back in 64. We're talking about repetition of, of words and writing letters was a big deal back in the 60s. Uh, yes, it was because <laughs> people actually people actually wrote letters back then. Nobody writes letters anymore. Yeah, that's right. It was 
part of the lifestyle that existed. If you wanted to communicate with someone and you didn't want to, you couldn't call them up long distance on the telephone, you didn't want to have to pay for those outrageous charges, people wrote lots of letters to people back in 64. Absolutely. So it's, it's a beautiful love song. Absolutely. It's a great love song that Paul wrote. And I think it's still a great song. I think the song holds up today just as much as it did when it was released back then. I agree. And uh, it has kind of either like a Calypso vibe or, or some kind of uh, a show tune kind of vibe to it. It said that um, his girlfriend was Dot Rome at the time. And that's who he wrote it for. Um, there were big covers that uh, were also hits by Sonny Curtis and the Chipmunks. If I give this a rating, I love this song. I'm going with A again. gonna have to go a for the next one too um just because i really love this song baby it's you is a great or back rack song sherelle's made it a hit it's not the way you smile that touch my heart it's not the way you kiss but uh john lennon's just does a great really soulful and throaty voice on this and it's great oh his vocals are superb i think again similar to anna but maybe even his vocals are even better on baby it's you i mean it's so i think it's really sexy his voice is is it just pulls you in it's it's he's got this sensuality i should say about it his vocal it's just one of his best vocals. I'd say one of his best vocals ever. I'd go as far as to saying that, Tom. I mean, that's that's how much I think of John singing on this song. Incredible. And I love the song, and I still play it quite a bit. I play it, you know, on my radio show quite a bit whenever I feel like, oh, yeah, well, here's a great John song, a great example of John's great vocals. And I'll play Baby, It's You. It's, it's really gorgeous. And one of the things that's interesting on the recording is that George Martin is also on the track. And he plays the Celesta, which just you know, gives it that sort of ethereal touch to the recording, which is really nice. George did a lot more vocals, and uh, when it came down to the records, he did less. But on this album, he has two songs, and it's uh, Do You Want to Know a Secret, which hit number two while uh, Can't Buy Me Love was number one. Billy Kramer and the Dakotas had a number two hit on it. You never know how much I really love you. You never know how much I really can. Uh, was channeling a Disney song from Snow White called I'm Wishing. Want to know a secret? How much not to tell? We are standing by a wishing well. 
that his mom Julia would sing to him, and it was the most successful song from George all the way up until something uh, chart wise. And uh, there's no drums on this song, and I love this song. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a great vocal. I I even love the introduction, you know, the slow introduction. Uh, the thing that also is interesting is the production of the song, the background vocals. Uh, with that's of course that's John and Paul. When you listen to it, they're completely bathed in a lot of uh, a lot of reverb. It's and it's great. It's such a great sounding uh, recording. Do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, closer. Uh, but lyrically, it's quite thin because it just keeps repeating pretty much the same verse over and over again um, except for the bridge of course has different lyrics but I love it I loved it when I first heard it and I still love it and as a matter of fact this is one of those songs that I perform uh, when I go out and do my my performances out here in Los Angeles Uh, I always include this song in my set list because I love it that much now just because we're, you know, basically 50 years into this, uh, I'm on a lot of Facebook Beatles sites. I guess you are, too. And a lot of times A Taste of Honey is uh, noted as the worst song or one of the worst songs that the Beatles ever did, which is a little shocking to me. Lenny Welsh made it a hit in 1962 on the R&B charts. Barbra Streisand added it to her debut album in 63. Um, Bobby Scott and Rick Morrow did an instrumental version in 1958 that, that Herb Albert kind of elaborated on. Then why He will return, he will return. It was a known song in in the zeitgeist of music, so people were aware of it. Um, I felt that the performance was, was great, and I don't... I can't put it on the dog list at all. No, I think it's ridiculous for people to say that. Of course, everyone's entitled to say whatever they want to say, and and that's what they do. But for me, I think it's a great song. McCartney's vocals, I think, are superb. And even the background vocals, again, you know, introducing uh, England's number one vocal group. A taste of honey, tasting much sweeter than wine. So it perfectly fits to with the title of the album, and I love it. I, I love this one. Absolutely love a taste of honey. And you know who doesn't want a taste of honey? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I admit that uh, Paul's voice is very silky and it's a great yeah. great recording of his sound of what he sounds like it's really pretty yeah i love it very much and i'm glad that they included it on this lp the next song is a song that i had to go back on youtube and listen to because i couldn't remember it it's the b-side of twist and shout it's called there's a place it's a uh, inspired by somewhere from west side story which kind of makes sense 
So I could see how he got some of that out of it. John wrote it more or less. He said it was a Motown influence version. Well, it was it was uh, actually released as the B side, as you said, to Twist and Shout. It was released as a single on Polly Records, uh, which I had back then. And I love it because it's about escapism. For teenagers, you think teenagers want to be sitting at home with their mom and dad? No. They want to go to a special place where they can escape to. And that place was the place that the Beatles created with their recordings. So sometimes that place would be their bedroom with the door closed, listening to this record over and over again. That was a place where they could go when they felt low, when they felt blue. And so lyrically, I think it's quite advanced. I think it's one of lyrically one of the most advanced songs that the Beatles did in 1964. There is a So we end the, the the album with an epic song, Twist and Shout. There's obviously it's an Isley Brothers song from 1962. It was the last song from a 13-hour session with the. They had 15 minutes left. It's a great story. John was already hoarse, and w- they recorded this in one take, which is amazing. Just amazing. What do you think Ferris is gonna do? It was uh, on Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and it, it hit number 23. It's the longest chart recording of any Beatles songs at this point. Booker T and the Majors made it a hit in 1962. Uh, the Searchers, 63. The Iguanas in 64. This was a hot song. The Isley Brothers had a whole different take on it. And the Beatles, like when you compare the two, you're like, oh, there is another recording. It'll be kind of etched in, I guess, in pop culture forever. I have nothing bad to say about this. I think it's like fantastic. It's a great bar song. When I disc jockeyed, I would play this song and people scream this song. It's awesome. to talk about with this one actually the energy level is over the top the absolute energy that they the Beatles put out when they recorded this was was mind-blowing absolutely and as you had mentioned they'd been recording and singing you know on this this tremendously long recording session that you know you can only sing for so long and then your voice starts to give out but they had to record this one more song. So John, of all things, what he did was, because he had a cold anyway, he was drinking milk to help him get through the recording of this song, which is pretty unusual. I guess it was to soothe his throat, but you know, milk uh, also creates phlegm. (laughs) So you could say it's kind of a phlegmy vocal that he did, but 
It's one of his best rock vocal recordings, no doubt. Who would ever tell him to do that? Like, that's not what you do <laughs> with milk. No, yeah, drinking milk, yeah, it's quite unusual, yeah. I mean, I suppose you could have a scoop of ice cream, which would do kind of the same thing, but the ice cream is colder and it would be more soothing. But anyhow, <laughs> so with this song, it was when it came out, I don't know anyone. Oh, yeah, Twist and Shout, that's the Isley Brothers. I don't know anybody who said that. When they heard this, they thought, and I did, along with many, many other people, that the Beatles wrote this song. It was the Beatles that wrote Twist and Shout. And, and what was funny is that in my band in, in 1967, we backed up the Isley Brothers at a, at a concert uh, in, in New London, Connecticut. And when I met the Isley Brothers backstage going over the set list for the show, I asked them what songs they were going to do because we never played with them before. And they would say, well, we're going to do this song, we're going to do that song, and we're going to do Twist and Shout. And I said, oh, yeah, Twist and Shout by the Beatles. We know that one. And Ron Isley looked at me and said, the Beatles? I said, yeah. I said, the Beatles did that song. And he goes, well, yeah, they recorded it, but we recorded it first. And I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't even know <laughs> the Isley brothers had done it. Uh, but they were really nice about it, and uh, we put on a really good show together with them uh, way back in 67. So that's my little sidebar on that song. It's, I'd say, when you say as a rocker, it would be probably one of their top ten songs. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and again, the vocal performance is over the top. When you listen to the, you know, the slow build-up, the ah, uh, ah. Uh, uh, I mean, come on! You know that was that was incredible, and and that was McCartney who was who was doing the really high, the ascending note, the sliding high up note to the to the end of that chord. It was amazing, and then even the ending, you know, we were doing the triplets, boom, 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 splash. So it was the arrangement, it was the vocals, it was the Beatles doing Twist and Shout. And no one could do Twist and Shout like the Beatles. It doesn't mean that there was anything wrong with the other artists who recorded this song. It's just that the Beatles did it this way, and it blew everybody away. And it still does, this song does, when it comes to the Beatles recording a rock and roll song. This album was number two for nine weeks. It never cracked number one because Meet the Beatles was number one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It sold 1.3 million. Uh, but then there's a lot of controversy about uh, VJ and how how many bootlegs and counterfeits were created. So it's probably completely different. And I know that the early Beatles album that, that gets released by Capitol basically has the same type of songs on it, this, this collection. And um, it was on VJ. I would rank this as a, an A-plus for me. Looking back at it 50 years, what's your, what's your overall thoughts? Well, it's a must. You have to have this album 
in your Beatles collection of albums. You have to, because this was the beginning of the brilliance of the Beatles recordings. This is a must. This is a must album for every Beatle lover. Absolutely. You have to have it. I agree. Uh, thank you, Beatle guru of Brooke Hoppin, for talking to me about the Beatles, the first album, Intro to the Beatles. Thank you, Brooke Halpin, for talking to me on Something Came From Bottle with our special edition of Beatles Come to America. Well, Tom, you know, it's great being with you anytime and all the time. And it's great that I can be with you and talk about when the Beatles first came to America and the first album that was released here in the U.S. on VJ, on the VJ label, Introducing the Beatles, One, and I two, hope we get to talk three, again soon. Four. Next episode Meet the Beatles, Believe.
episode.